Welcome back to Screen Time. I'm Ro Khan. And I'm Richard Roper. Peacock is launching a six-part, six-hour docuseries on John Wayne Gacy. It's the latest in a long line of very well-made, kind of gruesomely compelling docuseries about some of the most infamous killings and serial killers in American history. Why is it all so popular now? We're going to talk about that. But first, Screen Time with Rowan Roper is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business success, because they believe today's online world is your opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com to get started today. There were red flags all along the way that for some reason nobody paid attention to. We're learning so much now we would never have known at the time. Could Gacy have done this alone? Maybe there's a cover-up here. Mom protected John. She carried secrets she went to the grave with. The thing everybody thought they knew wasn't the whole story. There it is, Devil in Disguise, a six-part, six-hour series on Peacock about John Wayne Gacy. So this is the NBC streaming network, row, and this is their first major foray into one of the most popular genres in all of streaming viewing, and that is the limited series, the docu-series about true crime. I think when people think about those series, they think about the Netflix shows and then HBO as well, Making a Murderer. And many of them are based on podcasts. Yeah, that's a great point, and actually kind of have the same style, although there are visuals that are very important, but they're very, very well made. There is, I don't want to say a formula to them, but there's almost always these sort of uh, elegant and yet haunting opening uh, credits where you see some visuals alluding to the crimes and you hear a lot of times a vocal of a popular song that's been kind of altered or redone to fit the mood of, of the stories. And, you know, we've got uh, Making a Murderer, which was right. huge for Netflix. There was an Amanda Knox uh, limited series. In fact, the producers of that are the producers of Devil in Disguise, the John Wayne Gacy uh, docuseries that's coming out. The Ted Bundy tapes, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, The Night Stalker. The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel, The American Murder, The Family Next Door. Unfortunately, there's almost a never-ending uh, library of yeah. cases, most of them from the 20th century. The John Wayne Gacy story has been told many times in all kinds of books, and there have been some documentaries, and there was a, uh, a dramatization, a TV movie. Starring right? Brian Dennehy, yeah. I don't think we've seen anything this exhaustive, this comprehensive in telling the story of John Wayne Gacy, the infamous serial killer who was arrested in the late 1970s in Norwood Park Township, which is in the northwest side of Chicago, a neighborhood. And they eventually discovered that he had killed 33, that we know of, 33 bodies of boys and young men were recovered. The Cook County Sheriff's Office is still investigating now 40-some years later what happened there because wow. there are still missing young men from that era that have family members whether parents are still alive in mm. many cases they're not but they have siblings or friends that are continuing to pursue the memory because they know that john wayne gacy killed their friend it's incredible stuff rowan uh, one of the things i want to give credit to the to the makers of this documentary series is the interviews that they give with siblings with surviving family members and they keep that focus as much on the victims 
as the undeniably fascinating yet chilling and we, you know, absolutely detest every breath he takes, John Wayne Gacy. But it's pretty fascinating as well. Uh, Robert Ressler was a legendary FBI profiler. He passed away a few years ago. Um, he had interviewed the likes of uh, Ted Bundy. He actually advised Thomas Harris. When Thomas Harris was writing the Silence of the Lambs novel, he advised him on the Hannibal Lecter character. That's how well he knew those types. He, he actually coined the term serial killer. Well, in the early 1990s, after Gacy had been convicted and sentenced to death and was serving his time until time of his execution, about two years before he was executed, Robert Ressler sat down with him in the warden's office of the Menard Correctional Center in Illinois and did a videotaped interview with Gacy that was to be shown to other FBI profilers, to trainees. So it was you know, done as a teaching tool. But it's fascinating because you see the devil in disguise. You see this very ordinary schlub in his blue button-down shirt. They took the cuffs off him because what's he going to do in the warden's office? You know, I'm sure there was somebody nearby with mm -hmm. a shotgun. And Wrestler is a master because he just lets Gacy talk. And you just hear this, this guy who in some ways was a master manipulator talking about what he did in such a dispassionate, strange way and complaining about the media coverage of him. He said he was a victim. Yeah, and saying he was a victim. So that's also included in Devil in Disguise. They they parcel out snippets of this interview, most of which the public has never seen before. You and I, because we grew up in Chicago and worked in Chicago, have a lot of real estate here. When I worked in television in the late 1980s, we'd done a series of interviews with John Wayne Gacy inside the prison. Wow. Our particular yeah. unit had done that. It was just very creepy. He was doing business out of his jail cell. He was painting portraits of clowns and Disney characters that he called the Hi-Ho series. And he was oh, selling them. Not online at that point because it was too early to be online, but eventually yeah. they became very valuable online. Yeah, after on his eBay death. when eBay yeah. first came out. Well, you mentioned that, Roe, going back to 1978 when John Wayne Gacy was arrested. Now I'm a few years older than you. I was about the same age as most of those victims. I was 19 years old and we were watching the local news like everybody else. I'm still living at home. And you saw this unbelievable story developing over several days because the arrest was made. And then investigators went in there and started digging through the crawl space. And to find 33 bodies, you don't do it in one day because they'd find one, then they'd find another. The weather was so bad. It was the middle of winter in mm -hmm. Chicago. But I just remember seeing that story as a 19-year-old and saying, geez, this is, this is like something we've never seen before. And then years later, when I was writing news columns for the Sun-Times, I wrote a number of pieces over the years. And uh, I, at one point, had access to the evidence room oh. where all of the materials that had been used in the case against Gacy were still there, just in boxes. The entrance to the crawl space was just leaned up against a wall. Uh, but the, you know, the items that I, that I went through, I'll never forget this row. I mean, we're talking driver's licenses of victims, uh, jackets, receipts, high school class rings, wow. uh, even some of the rope that Gacy used. He called it the rope trick. He would strangle his victims and kind of and put a stick between the rope and their neck and then twist it and cut off their air supply. That's how he killed most of his victims. It was After it was he chilling. had either gotten them drunk or drugged them also, yeah. that was part of his, his play. And we should go back and explain a little bit about how he yeah. actually operated. He was a 
clown for birthdays and things like that. But that's not really where he met his victims. He was also a contractor. Right. And he had this company that would go out and do basically uh, mom stores yeah. or yes. convenience yeah, exactly. stores. Exactly. And he would do flooring for those. So we'd hire these guys. Yeah. The itinerant guys, he'd go hang out in places where young guys would hang out. There was a, an area right on the shores of Lake Michigan in the city of Chicago where on any given summer night, you'd have all these people out there drinking beer and mm. smoking dope and doing whatever else, you know, teenagers do. And he would kind of hang out and, you know, sort of say, hey, by the way, you're looking for a job. You meet him on the job. He'd groom them on the job, invite them back to his home or some other location, yeah. get them drunk. Attempt to molest them and then kill them. Exactly right. And, you know, again, I think about where I was in life then, Ro, as, as, a, as a teenager working my way through college. I actually took a year off between sophomore and junior year and got a job in a warehouse where I delivered parts to steel mills throughout the south side and, and, and northwest uh, Indiana. And it was the same kind of thing. I didn't have any kind of experience whatsoever with anyone like Gacy, but you'd get word of jobs for you know, kids who were 16, 17, 18, you know, strong, willing to work. And the truth was, yeah, you weren't in a union. So they, you know, they'd pay you. But, you know, if you got eight bucks an hour instead of the two bucks an hour, you'd get working in a convenience right. store. He paid well. He paid well. And yeah. with in the case with Gacy, a lot of these teenagers, they were between the ages of like 15 and about 22. Uh, they, not all of them, you know, were runaways or teenage prostitutes, which was kind of the, the first narrative we got when the story first broke. But in a lot of cases, they were kind of on their own. Some lived at home, some didn't. And they, he had you know, a very specific male victim he was looking yeah, for. Yeah, and they would be willing to, you know, to do the work like that. So the house in Norwood Park Township that John Wayne Gacy lived in, and I didn't realize this, Ro, they have uh, audio recordings of uh, his second wife, who actually lived in that house with him and their two young children. And she believes, in retrospect, that the killings were already starting to take place because she would talk to him constantly, talk to Gacy about the smell coming from underneath the house when she was living there with her two children. She eventually left. She just knew something was off about this guy. You mentioned the contracting business. He was also this, you know, this political uh, wannabe kind of guy. You know, mm -hmm. he was active in the JCs and the Democratic Party and was, you know, knew a lot of people and loved to brag about this. And yes, he would take in these kids working for him but he even says in the documentary i think he gave away like 12 sets of keys to his house so people could bunk there the young guys could bunk there and when a lot of these kids would go missing it was two or three years leading up to the arrest at least and as you mentioned in the documentary there are interviews with siblings and other loved ones who said no we did go to the police and we said hey this guy's missing this kid's missing and the cops in a lot of cases they sometimes they would even talk to John Wayne Gacy cuz someone would say i think he's working for this guy and Gacy would say oh no i have his car cuz i bought it from him he needed money cuz he wanted to run away and they'd say to the family sorry you know we know he's alive because this reliable responsible right. adult told us that he just doesn't want to be around you anymore at the end, when the cops were closing in on him, he knew it. And he yeah. called a lawyer who had an office not too far from his home yeah. on the northwest side yeah. of Chicago. And this lawyer had had a conversation with him before. And obviously, he had been a named suspect in this because they'd started to find the bodies in his basement. And he had made the argument, hey, I don't know who put them there. You know, I'm a contractor. There's all kinds of people are in and These out of These young guys house. were at my house. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and so there was a couple of days before he was actually taken into custody and mm -hmm. charged. Yeah. There's a book written by the guy who became his lawyer about the night that Gacy came to his office late at night. I think it was like 10 o'clock at night. Yes. 
bottle of scotch on the desk, and just for hours, Gacy admitted to everything that he had done. Chilling stuff, yeah. And Sam Amarante, the lawyer, still alive today, became a county judge in, wow. in oh, Chicago. Yeah. yeah. Okay. He said it was the most chilling experience a human being could have to listen to this guy coldly explain how he had killed at least 33 young men and then disposed of them on, in, or around his property. It's just, it's just unbelievable and inconceivable uh, to this day. And one of the things I didn't know, Ro, I, I knew from way back when there were stories he was a convicted uh, sex offender, John Wayne Gacy, because right. in the state of Iowa, he had been convicted of sodomy with someone who was underage. He claimed that it was consensual. What we hear in the documentary, it was more like there were six or seven cases and he pleaded guilty to one. So he gets sentenced to 10 years in an Iowa correctional facility. And this guy's only in his 20s at the time, right? And this documentary lays out how once he's in the prison in Iowa, he starts gaming everything there. He becomes the top chef in the cafeteria and reserves the best steaks and cuts of meat and everything for the warden and other prison official. He gets to wear a white shirt, not even the normal prison uniform. He reads a story about a local miniature golf course that's closing down, arranges for it to be transported to the prison yard as a recreational thing. So there's this, all this footage, which I had never seen before, of local Iowa TV stations interviewing this guy as kind of a model prisoner who, you know, because he claimed all he had ever done was shown pornographic movie stag films back in the day, that the rest of it was nonsense. So, and they kind of took him at his word, and he was being portrayed as like, this is what rehabilitation is all about. In the meantime, the doctors who had examined him, the psychiatrist, had written reports saying this guy can never be rehabilitated. He's a psychopath. He will harm and hurt again. And yet, Roe, 10-year sentence, they let this guy out after a year and a half. Illinois okays him to come to Illinois and because he, he had a job in a restaurant as a cook, and then he started that contracting company that you talk about. So you look at that timeline and you think he still would have been serving his sentence in the mid-'70s when he was doing all these killings in the Chicago area. It is fascinating that among the top genres of podcasts and these limited docuseries is true crime because it plays to the way that the human brain is organized. We want to problem solve, mm. and we want to problem solve to two things, either procreation or staying alive, sex and death. Yeah. And that's what all of these shows have in common. That's very true. And in 99% of the cases of, of these shows, the killer is eventually apprehended. So we feel like justice prevailed, even though there had been all kinds of tragedy. What I find fascinating, too, though, Ro, about the John Wayne Gacy story is when you think about subjects of these other docuseries, whether it's Ted Bundy or the Green River Killer or Son of Sam or the Night Stalker, in all of those cases, Ro, we knew there was somebody out there because there was a trail of bodies and there were sometimes communications from the killer. So they didn't know the name of Ted Bundy, but they knew that somebody was killing these young co-eds across first the Northwest and then Florida. They didn't know who the Night Stalker was, but they knew somebody was calling himself the Night Stalker or Zodiac or in New York, Son of Sam. In the case of John Wayne Gacy, we didn't get a bunch of stories about a bunch of missing young men and boys in the Chicago area and who's doing all this because there were no bodies until... John Wayne Gacy was arrested. So there was no, you know, who is the contractor killer or who is, you know, there was no nickname for him. Right. No ongoing story. No pleas from investigators to the public. If you've seen this guy, no police sketches. It all just broke 
on one horrific night in December of 1978. We didn't know that these killings were taking place. You did have complaints, though, by family yes. members who were going to local authorities, whether it was suburban authorities in Chicago, the city of Chicago yep. Police Department, or the Cook County Sheriff's Office. They were going and saying, hey, my son has disappeared. Then they would ask questions about the son, and they'd talk to the son's friends and everything, and they'd find out that maybe he was gay or he was living this sort of itinerant life. And they go, hey, yeah, it's just a runaway or it's just another gay guy. We just don't know. And it was a time back then where that was really viewed completely differently than it is today. The headlines were a lot about gay sex crimes, which made it sound as if there were willing participants here, and then things went awry. There's a feature in this uh, docu-series, Row where they talk about two years before Gacy was arrested, a young man was picked up by Gacy, brought to Gacy's place, chloroformed, sexually assaulted, beaten, and then was dumped by Gacy at the corner where Gacy had picked the guy up. And when he filed his police report, and, and even he even went back and tried to figure out where the house was, gave him all this information, police pretty much dismissed it as, well, that was a homosexual tryst gone wrong. And then this guy, two years later, is watching the news and said, I told you about that guy. And it wasn't until the disappearance of Robbie Peast, who was just 15 years old and was working at a convenience store, as you mentioned, and Gacy had come in and said, hey, if you're looking for other work that'll pay you more than working at this convenience store, this kind of Walgreens-esque type of pharmacy, I've got a job for you. The kid's mom, Robbie Peast's mom, was out front in the car waiting for him. He comes out and says to his mom, there's a guy who has maybe contracting work for me that would pay me a lot more than this. I'm just going to go back into the store. And Gacy was waiting behind the store. And he tells his mom, I'll be right back. His mom's in the car that's running in front of the store. He goes back into the store and is never seen again because he got in the car with Gacy. His parents, Robbie Peace's parents, they went to the police, but they also went to the media because they said, my kid's 15 years old. He doesn't have a history of running away. He hasn't lived on his own. Something's wrong here. And the investigators were eventually able to, you know, they kept hearing from other employees at the store. Well, the guy, the the contractor guy was in here. Oh, who's that? Uh, John Wayne Gacy. And that's how they tied Gacy to the disappearance of Robbie Peace, who unfortunately was one of Gacy's last victims. So devil in disguise is a must-see. It's brilliantly done. It, listen, it's, it's hard to watch. And I know some people, when they hear about these shows, they want nothing to do with it. But the, the proof is in the ratings and the fact that they keep doing these shows. People are fascinated by this subject matter. All right. Coming up the Thursday 3, but first, Floyd's. Your haircut, your way. Floyd's 99 Barbershop has expert barbers and stylists who take pride in crafting the perfect cut every time. Walk in, book online, or give your shop a call. Learn about their safety practices at floydsbarbershop.com. Safety never looks so good. Every Thursday, it's a Thursday 3. Three things you should be watching this weekend. Going to start with number three row, and that would be Nobody, the action thriller starring Bob Odenkirk. If you check out the Screen Time podcast, we have our interview with Bob Odenkirk that's up right now. And it's very different from other things you've seen him done. Bob Odenkirk is the equalizer, basically, in this movie. A lot of crazy action, but some of it's done to, like, show tunes. So it's got kind of a Tarantino-esque Guy Ritchie feel to it. So Nobody at number three. Wow. And it was a very interesting interview. You should go back and listen to it, as Richard just mentioned, because there are some great observations about how he had to get into that character, not only as an actor, but also as a stuntman. And he talked about working with Christopher Lloyd. Everybody knows him as Doc Brown from Back to the Future or from Taxi. And Christopher Lloyd, his first action movie ever in his career, he's in Nobody, playing Bob Odenkirk's father. 
And that's in the movie theaters. Yep, in theaters. Uh, Nobody is the name of the movie. I've got another one. This one I think, Ro, you would particularly dig. It's a movie called The Vault. And it stars Liam Cunningham, who was Davos Seaworth, the Onion Knight on Game of Thrones. So if you saw him, if you saw this bearded guy, you'd be like, he was great in that. So here's the setup here. This is one of those great heist movies. The deal is the Bank of Spain... There is this hidden treasure from from pirates lore and yore. You know, there always is, right? Underneath the Bank of Spain in this vault. Now, this is not a true story movie, but the truth is the Bank of Spain has a vault underneath the bank that has water around it. If anybody a ever moat? breaks into the No, it's under it's underground. So if anybody would even get past the three steel doors and get to the vault, the floodgates are unleashed and you will be drowned. I mean, they ain't messing around at the Bank of Spain. It's a real-life security system. Yeah. If you try to break into the vault underneath the Bank of Spain, (laughs) the waters are unleashed, and you'll be drowned. (laughs) Okay, hold on. Yes. So what happens if you forgot something in the vault? Wait. Do you have that memo? Well, I think I left yeah, it in the vault. You got a guy that can turn it off if the security people oh, need see. to go down there. All right. But this has got a very Ocean's Eleven type feel as they try to figure out this guy Liam Cunningham plays. He's he's a guy that's been you know doing this for years and pulling off heists, but this is the ultimate heist. He's going to break in to the vault of the Bank of Spain against the backdrop of Spain playing in the World Cup. So there's like a million people around the Bank of Spain that can oh. kind of be used as a diversion. So it's called The Vault. Ingenious thriller, I must say. Where do we find this? That's in movies, too. Oh, I got to start going back to the movies. A lot of times, if you know these movies are playing in theaters, depending on where you live, check it out. It might be available on streaming platforms as well. It depends on where you're at right now. There are very few movies that are exclusively in theaters anymore. Okay. And number one of the Thursday Three, something you must absolutely see this weekend. This one you have to watch at home because it's on HBO. It's called Tina. It is the definitive documentary, row about the life and times of the legendary Tina Turner. And we a lot of us know the story. We saw What's Love Got to Do With It, Angela Bassett playing her, the fictionalized version. She'd had her own huge best-selling book. She, in 1981, gave an interview to People Magazine where she detailed the abuse she had suffered at the hands of Ike Turner, which at the time was shocking because people just didn't talk about it that much. But it's still a fascinating documentary. It also updates us on where Tina's been because she's in Hmm. retirement. Turns out she's living in Zurich, She's been happily married for like 20-some years. She found this happy ending. And when they show where she lives in Zurich, in Switzerland, Row, <laughs> Tina Turner got the life she deserved. I'm saying, you know, we saw a little bit of Gail King's house when Oprah did that interview <laughs> with, uh, with the Royals. Meghan and the yeah. Prince. And they could fit that house in the backyard of Tina Turner's uh, beautiful wow. palatial getaway where she's living now a beautiful, contented, retired life. So Tina is the documentary on HBO. Oh, I got to see that then. I just love when the expatriates move to Switzerland because there's something going on there. Maybe the Rowan Roper podcast will have to uh, do, emanate from Switzerland if we get thrown out of this country. We could live on Tina's estate. She'd never know. <laughs> That's a good plan. <laughs> Next week, for sure, we are going to start the contest for the awards. And you know the awards we're talking about? The big at awards. The end of April, yeah. right? Yeah. Movie's biggest night. Yes, go to AmericanEagle.com. That website will give you details on the exact URL that you can punch into your Google machine to get to the ballot. We have incredible prizes. We have prizes you can't get anywhere. They're not even commercially available. So our friends in Hollywood have been helping us out. Tuesday, March 30th, all details will be revealed. 
All I can tell you is, Ro, I hope my picks for the Academy Awards in all 24 categories are better than my bracketology for the NCAA because <laughs> I think I'm right now I, I'm in a I'm in a contest with 2,000 entrants and I think I'm 22,000 even though there's only 2,000 entrants. So <laughs> kudos to me, oh, man. The Roan Rubber Podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. AmericanEagle.com is a full service global digital agency providing best in class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and much more. Visit AmericanEagle.com for more information. And as always, we want to thank everybody who's been listening, telling their friends, providing us with feedback, downloading, and most of all, our subscribers, you're our favorites. Yes, for sure. Executive producers for Screen Time with Rowan Roper are Renee Nelson and Tim Melanius. Music and production director, Brian Alltimer. See you next time. <laughs>